0: Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. We've been talking for a number of months, weeks now, really several months now, about why we're here. What's our purpose? What's the purpose for my life? What's your purpose for your life? And why is the church here? And it's interesting because one of the devotions that I read every morning, uh, one of them talked about it was actually uh, Spurgeon's, one of Spurgeon's devotions, and he talked about the only reason the church is here is because God has a mission for it to reach the lost. It's the only reason the church is here, because otherwise, because he's a loving God, he would have taken us all home to be with him. And he wrote that, I don't know how many, 75, 100 years ago. And that's what we've been talking about. And so we've begun to look at what is the purpose for this church? Why are we here? What is the purpose for our individual lives? And we we decided to look where Jesus, what Jesus said at the very end of his public ministry when he pulled his disciples aside, right before he was to ascend into heaven, the very last things he gave them was his instructions for their purpose. And he commissioned them. We call it the Great Commission. And the only one we've looked at so far is Mark chapter 16 and where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we've seen that that means we're to go. That's a word of action. It's an action verb. Go. We're to do something. we will go to into, which means to be out, involved, and in, in, intermixed with the world that's around us. Into all the world, not just, and you have a world, I have a world, we all have a world, and together all the body of Christ will get into all the world. And to preach, that doesn't mean stand behind a pulpit, although it does involve that. It means to declare, to explain. And we do that the most powerful way by living our life. I mean, the man we had here Sunday morning, uh, Friday night, he just lives it. He lives the gospel. He lives it wherever he goes, whoever he talks to. He lives it. And I want us all to be come to that place. God wants us all to come to that place. We are, what Paul talked, wrote to, to one of the, to the churches, he says, You are living epistles, living letters. The Word of God has been, has been written in your hearts, and it's in your lives, and so to be read by all men. And that's what God's intention is for the body of Christ, is that we're epistles, we're letters to the world to be read by them, not just billboards. Billboards are nice, and advertising on TV is nice, but there's nothing more powerful than a living testimony, meeting somebody who is a living example of how Christ has changed their life, taken them from darkness and brought them into light. And so then we began to look at, well, what is the, if we're to preach the gospel, what is it? we began to realize maybe, just maybe, we don't really fully understand it. Because we saw that if we, the gospel means good news... And in our normal everyday life, when we have run across good news, we have no problem sharing that with people. We want to share it with people. If you've got a good restaurant or a good movie or you've a good what play or whatever it is you've experienced that's good, we want to tell people about it because we want to share what 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 we've experienced is good with others for two reasons. Because we care about them, but also when they go in and they enjoy it, it kind of reaffirms our own judgment about it. But then why if this is the greatest news ever? why do we have the most trouble sharing this? Maybe the goodness of this news hasn't really hit us. Or maybe it hit us some time ago and in the busyness of life and in our walk with the Lord, we've kind of lost touch, kind of like the church at Ephesus that John wrote the letter to them in Revelation where he said, you've done all these wonderful things but you've left your first love. We've lost touch with the goodness of the good news. Or maybe we've never known it. And then we went over to... Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read verse 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What we've seen is that, first of all, Paul was not ashamed of it. But there's a reason why he was not ashamed of it. He was not ashamed of it because it was the power of God, and we've talked about the power of God and what that's like, and we just spent some time just meditating. It was interesting because... because uh Jack Easterly, Pastor Jack on Friday night, talked a little bit about that also, who God is and what God can do, and what the power of the dynamis, the dynamite power of God is like that created the universe with just the words, let there be, and it's held together still by the power of those words, this absolute power. And this word says, Paul says, that in the gospel, the power of God is released into our lives. And so the second question we asked ourselves is, where's that power? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. That word salvation doesn't just mean getting into heaven and not going to hell. It literally is the word sozio, which means to be delivered, to be transformed, to be set free from everything. The Gospel of John says, Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I mean completely free. We sang about being free, chains being broken. And those chains mean bondage to fear, bondage to any kind of bondage, legalistic bondage, bondage to drugs, bondage to any kind of addiction anything that holds back the life of god in us is bondage and the gospel is the power of god to deliver us and so the question is if we've got the power of god in this gospel how come we're not freer because when you're really free people know it you can't hold that in either there's a joy that comes with being free there's a peace that comes with being free and if I remember correctly, those are some of the things that are listed among the fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting to go and look through the fruit of the Spirit, which you see in Galatians chapter 5, and, wonder, and look at your own life. How much of those are so obvious in my life other people see them? The gospel is the power of God. So we're looking at these not to condemn ourselves. God's not condemning us. But God often gets our attention with questions, questions that he knows the answer to, that we're not thinking about until he asks us the question, and then we get to thinking about it, well, wait a minute, what I'm experiencing doesn't line up with this why. And as we ask the question why, now we open our hearts up for the Spirit of God to begin to show us things we weren't looking for before. By and large, if you're not looking for something, you won't see it. You walk right past things. I've had people you know, walk right past me in a store because I wasn't wearing a suit. And I wasn't in church like they think I live here in in a suit all the time, and I don't go to the store, I don't do anything else. Oh, it's you. Well, yeah, I mean I have a, a life outside of here too, and because if you're if you're expecting something in one direction. It's very hard to see it somewhere else. So if we're not looking, if we're not open to what God wants to show us, it's sometimes very hard for him to get our attention unless it's some crisis or something. And we don't want to have to go through a crisis for our attention to be gotten by God. We want to be open for him to speak to us so we can do that. So that's the spirit in which this is being ministered to us, I believe. So we're going to move on now. We're going to begin to talk about what this gospel is what this gospel is and why there's power in this gospel. And the answer is right here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So, the, so it only has power for those who believe. The gospel has enough power to save every person that's ever lived. The gospel, this gospel, has enough to save and completely deliver from every form of bondage that Satan has, everyone that's alive on the face of this earth today or has ever lived. But that power only works to those who believe. So the entrance into receiving that power, the entrance into receiving the gospel working in our lives, the doorway in is we have to believe it. You say, well, I'm here because I believe it. Well, one of the things that Pastor Jack brought out so well on Friday night is there are different levels of believing There are different levels of believing, and the proof of what you're believing is in how you live. There's a story in the New Testament where I was thinking of it as we were singing one of these songs during praise and worship about Jesus. You know, he's the Lord. In the middle of our storms, he's Lord. And I was thinking of a storm the disciples went through. Jesus had just fed five thousand men, plus all the children and and, and, uh, uh, and women. And then afterwards, he goes up onto the mountain to pray, and he sends his disciples into the boat to go to the other side, and it's nighttime. And a storm comes up to the point that these men, these disciples are scared for their lives. And I've mentioned this many times, but keep in mind, these men, are all, most of them, are professional fishermen. And you don't catch fish in a city, you catch fish out on the sea. So not only were they professional fishermen, they were professional sailors. And these professional sailors are the storm is so bad, they're afraid they're going to die. And they look up, and Jesus comes to, to them in the middle of the storm, walking on water. And they cry out to him, and they think it's a ghost. And Jesus said, Is I. And Peter says in, in Matthew's account, he says, If it's you, bid me to come. And this is a whole message here. Jesus just says, come. It's an invitation. That invitation was given to all 12. But only one of them got out of the boat and walked. And Peter didn't walk on water. He walked on the word come. Because if you think you can walk on water, we got a pond out here. Unfortunately, it's not very deep, because if you don't succeed, you won't drown, although there's some snapping turtles in there, so you may want to get out quickly. (laughs) You can't walk on water. Peter can't walk on water, but he can walk on the Word of God. And literally, Peter literally stepped out on the Word of God, come. There were 11 other men in that boat that could have also stepped out, they believed in Christ, but only Peter believed in his word enough to act on it. And James chapter 2 says that when you act on that word, then it becomes a reality to you at a different level. So to believe the gospel isn't just to give mental assent. So many people, I believe, and there's John Wesley wrote a very powerful sermon on this entitled Almost Saved. And he's basically saying that many people in the church that day, and I suspect it's true today, and I'm not talking about faith Christian Center specifically, but generally Christians in church mentally agree with the gospel. They read it and they say, yes, that makes sense. I believe that with my head. But Jesus said nothing about believing with our head. He talks about believing with our heart, and that's a different level of believing. Because when you believe with your heart, it changes you, it affects you. When you believe in your heart, you're going to begin to do things differently, because it moves you in your heart. Your heart affects your will, and your will is what determines what you'll do or not do. No he really didn't plan to get into all this, but believing is key. So the gospel has power in our life only to the extent that we believe. I quoted earlier John, I think it's in chapter 8, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So a lot of people think, well, the truth shall set you free. No, it's only the truth you know that will set you free. And it's not knowing in your head, it's knowing in your heart. So you have to believe it before it will set you free. And you have to believe this gospel as good news to you before it releases the power in our lives. So we're going to go on a journey together that will, I believe, help us to see a greater depth in our heart and experience. See, many of us, we believe the gospel with our mind, but we haven't really experienced the depth and the power of this life-changing gospel in our lives, which is why it isn't so good news to us. It's not bad news, but it's not life-changing, earth-shattering, world-affecting good news. All right. So we're going to go down and look at this. Verse 17 begins to get answer. For, so he's going to tell us why it's the power of God to salvation. For in it, in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the gospel is power. The power of the gospel is in that it reveals something. The power of the gospel is in that it reveals something. And we're building a case here. I'm a lawyer by trade, so I'm going to lay out my case, or God's case. Let's talk about what revealed means, first of all. To reveal something means something that's been hidden. Thanks be to God's right. (laughs) Something that's been hidden is now made known. When it's revealed to you is not when it came into existence. When it's revealed to you is when you saw that it existed, but it already existed. Example. We have on each entrance on the side a button called a walk-in light, so that when it's dark in here, somebody walks into those doors, you just hit that button, there's a preset back there on our lighting system, and a minimal amount of lighting comes on so you can walk in here and not run into something. Well, during all this construction, a lot of that's been shut off. So my tendency is because I've walked through here so many times, I'd know what was there. So with the old setup where we had the old runner in the front, I would sometimes be tempted to walk through here without that light because I'd know what's in here. With this construction, I have never, I've not done that because I don't know what I'm going to find in here. Now, here's the point. When I walk in here, if I walk in here, it's dark. And they've got a box or something out here or some construction equipment out here. When I walk in that door, it's dark. That construction equipment's here. I don't know it's here, but it's already here. When I hit the light, the lights come on. Now that construction equipment is revealed to me. But it was already here. So when the, listen carefully, when the lights come on, I can now see and, and appreciate and, and navigate with or around what already was here. But I can now understand that it's here when I couldn't know it was here before. That's what the word revealed means. So what we're about to discover is something that's already exists and when your eyes open, you say, oh, now I see it, it's not when it happened, it's when you saw it. And until you see it, it won't mean anything to you because you don't even know it's there. So the power of the gospel is that it reveals something to us. It turns the light on. That's why the Apostle Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. And I pray this over my wife, my, my over me. Every day I pray it over you also that God would open the eyes of our understanding so that we might see something that's already there which is the hope of the gospel as well as the inheritance that we have together with all the saints and the exceeding greatness of the power that God displayed towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. By the way, that's what we're looking at on Wednesday nights. We're going through that prayer. What Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and therefore we can pray it for the church here at FCC and for our own lives. So Paul's asking God, open their eyes to see what you've done for them. And so that's our prayer this morning, is that God would open our eyes to see the power of the gospel that's already here, the potential. Whether you have a book sitting in your lap this morning or you have some electronic device sitting in your lap this morning, it doesn't matter. The power of God is resonant in that, in those words. But we won't receive something or believe something until it's revealed to us, until the light turns on. Say, well, how come God just doesn't do that? Because of a certain thing located between your left ear and your right ear, called your mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, we're transformed through the renewing of this mind, that word transformed is a Greek word which literally means to take what's already on the inside and bring it to the outside excuse me, that's the word uh, morpheo to take what's on the inside and to bring it to the outside and Paul is telling us that that gospel the power of that gospel is already in us but it can only come to the outside as our mind learns to think in line with this word so we're going through an exercise together that really is the process of renewing our thinking, changing the way we think about what the Word says and so that the Word of God can begin to reprogram this computer so that we'll allow certain things to come flow through it that will not flow through it until we program it. I have a pair of sunglasses that our, my oldest son gave me last year for Father's Day, and they're Polaroid lenses in them. And it's neat because if you don't know what a Polaroid lens is, the intention of a Polaroid lens is to, is to eliminate much of the glare on, on a bright, sunny day. And the way it does it is light waves come at all different kinds of angles. But what the Polaroid lens does it is it filters out lens, uh, light waves that go either, it's either horizontal or vertical. I don't remember which one. It filters out one of those light waves so that only certain light waves get in. And it's interesting because if you have those pair, you can turn them like this and everything changes. Why? Because now more light waves get in. And our mind is like a lens that only lets certain things into us and certain things out of us depending on how open it is. And the process of renewing our mind is allowing the Word of God, which is anointed to do this, to open our eyes, open the mind of our eyes, of our mind, of our heart, that we might see things that God already has for us. So that's what's contained in this word, reveal. So what is it to reveal? What is, it, what, is, what is the gospel's power is in revealing something, and this is what we're going to look at. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now that's the process. We'll look at that later on. So what we're going to look at now is what is this righteousness of God that we need to have revealed to us? Well, there's two sides of this, and we're going to look at one side first because there's an order to this you have to look at. There's God's side of this righteousness, and then there's our side of this righteousness. To understand that, let's first of all go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Very well-known verses in here. Let's start in verse uh, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Talk about being born again. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God. All these new things have come from God who has, look at this, reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul explains... That we are, that what God did in Christ is He reconciled the world to Himself. And He's given to us the word to go tell others that He's reconciled them to Him. And that He did that in Christ. Well, let's talk about the word reconciled. Because there's a lot in this word that we need to look at because it will open us up to what God has done for us and what God needed to do for us. Reconciled. the word begins with the prefix RE. This is real basic English stuff. But when a word begins with RE, it almost always means it's redoing something that was already done. So to remake something is to make something again. To re-bake something is to bake something again. So in order to re-something, there had to be something that was done first of all that now has to be done or is being done again. The Greek word for reconcile here is a word katalaso, which means to make an exchange of of, of value or to put back in favor, to restore to favor, It also means to even the balance out. So if something's out of balance, like a checkbook, what are you supposed to do every month when your bank statement comes into you? Most of them don't come by mail anymore. They email it to you or they tell you you can look it up online. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to reconcile the bank statement. Well, what do you do when you reconcile the bank statement? You're comparing what the bank says is in your account with what your very faithfully entered check ledger right says is in your account and if they don't match after you've accounted for the outstanding checks that haven't come that you've written that haven't come back to the bank yet if 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 all after all of that their number and your number don't match then your bank account is out of balance somewhere when our accountants come in here at the end of the year to do our to check our books the very first thing they want to see is the last bank statement which tells them what the bank says we have in there and our last reconciliation, our checkbook, what it says. And they want to see how we have balanced them out, how we have reconciled them, how we've shown that they are now back in correct balance with each other. Now, if something has to be reconciled, then something's happened to get the conciling off something's got it out of balance something's happened that has to be restored something's happened that has to be brought back into right balance or right relationship and God Paul is talking here about the relationship between God and the world and he's saying God was in Christ reconciling bringing that relationship back into right balance which means there must have been a time before when it was imbalanced and something happened to get it out of balance. We're talking about the power of God in the gospel is revealed to us by understanding the righteousness of God. And Paul is explaining this process by saying there was at one point a time when things were in balance, something happened to get them out of order, and God was at work in Christ to bring it back in order so that it's back in right balance or relationship or whatever that means. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what it was, what happened, so that we can see what Christ has done for us to bring it back. To do that, we got to go back to the beginning and the book of beginnings. So go with me to Genesis chapter 1. Hopefully you can find that. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures very quickly because I want to get into the meat of what we're going to talk about today. Verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's the only thing that God created. He created animals, He created stars, He created light, He created everything else and it's the only creation He made in His image, in their image. And when it says our, it means Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now let's go over to chapter 2. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth, that's his body, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God picked this pile of dirt up, called a man, and he must have gotten face to face with him somehow, because he breathed right into his nostrils the breath of life, and man went, "Ah," and in his lungs was the life of God not air, just air. He's talking about God breathed his life into that first man and then the woman who comes out of him. And a man became a living being, God's own life. Perfect, not restricted. And then goes on and says, in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man who he had formed. Verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. The word Eden means place of delight, place of overwhelming delight. So God, having created the earth, having created this man, having taken his own life and breathed it into that man, God did not take his own life and breathe it into any other living being. Gorillas, monkeys, elephants, One-eyed newts. There's nothing else the Bible says God took his own life and breathed into it. There's an animal life he gave them, But God's own life was only put in this man and therefore his woman. God puts them in the place of delight to enjoy it. And we'll see that in a minute. The next verse actually. Verse 8, 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. So God's telling him, I've made this place of beauty and glorious, a place of delight, and I want you to enjoy it. God's not some stern taskmaster with these sharp features and a big nose and big bushy eyebrows that hang out there and a scowl on his face and this big stick just waiting for you to get out of line and say, Yeah, I gotcha! Cross me, just do it once. The Bible's a completely different image that tells us of God. He's generous. If He weren't generous, we wouldn't be here. He's merciful, He's gracious. The very essence of His nature is to bless, and He creates this place of blessing. For this crowning creation that's made in his image, that he's created to love and to enjoy and to fellowship with and to to be connected with vitally. And he places him in this wonderful garden, a place of delight. And he says, listen, he says, I command you to eat of it freely. Isn't that nice? God commanded to eat freely. (laughs) There's a diet here, though. There's one tree they can't eat of. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why that tree? Because there's another tree, he tells them in there, which is the tree of eternal life. Why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil couldn't he eat? I'm just telling you what my belief is. My belief is because God is our creator. He knows our limits. He knows what he's made us to do, be able to do, and he knows what he's made us, has not made us able to do. And I believe that God made man... And did not give him the ability on his own to discern good from evil. Why? Why wouldn't God do that? Because when they were in perfect relationship with God, they didn't need to know the difference between good and evil because God knows the difference between good and evil. Our children, when they grow up and they learn to obey us, they don't need to understand all kinds of things until they're getting, beginning to get old enough where we can release them, prepare to release them into the world. When our children were small, I didn't, the issue was not why you're doing something. The only lesson they need to learn is because mom and dad said so, that's it. Because if they just did what mom and dad said, they weren't going to get in trouble. And there was one incident I was sharing with somebody the other day. When the youngest boys, our twin boys, were about... 18 months old, too. They were not running up and down in the driveway, and they had, one of them headed towards the street. And I'm standing there, and I can see a car coming around a corner. I didn't have time to explain to him why he shouldn't go into the street. I didn't have time to plead with him. All I did was say, No! And he stopped like that. Why? Because we taught them to simply do what we said. But as they've gotten older, and they're 34 now, I don't just say no or yes to them. we, we taught them and trained them as best we know how so that they came to the point as they began to go venture out into the world and eventually be released into the world they developed their own sense of what they needed to do and not do the proof that man doesn't know how to handle good and evil is on your front page of your newspaper this morning or tomorrow morning or yesterday's morning what kind of job are we doing knowing good from evil so God designed this man. In fact, look at, the, look at the last verse of chapter 2. This is so, It's again, it's a short little verse, but it is so packed with truth of a picture here. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Why were they not ashamed being naked? Because they had no consciousness of themselves. The idea, you know, some people have a recurring dream of standing in front of a class teaching with nothing on and wake up in a cold sweat with their heart going... <laughs> Why? The idea of standing in front of people without clothes on immediately produces a fear, a shame. Why? Because we're so self... Listen carefully. This is important what we're going to learn. We're so self... We're so self-conscious. Conscious is what your mind's thinking of, what you're aware of most of the time. They were not self-conscious at all to the point that they didn't even know they didn't have clothes on. They weren't covered. They didn't need anything. There was nothing, no need to cover because they were perfectly in God's presence. They were so conscious of God. this This is the key. They were so conscious of God... They had no real awareness of themselves. They were lost in who he is. His beauty, his majesty, his glory, his love was so enveloping, so awesome. They were lost in who he is. Just God's life is so awesome. Moses twice was in his presence for 40 days and didn't eat food and didn't even drink water. And you cannot Go 40 days without drinking water. But if you're standing in the presence of the source of life himself, it doesn't matter what you have or don't have because that life emanating from God sustained Moses for 40 days and 40 nights. So much so when he came down off that mountain, the glory of God had saturated his clothing and his skin and people couldn't stand in his presence because that glory like like radioactivity had gotten in his skin but, of course, it began to fade because it didn't come out of him. It was just absorbed in a grand... When you get away from the source, it begins to fade and dissipate. They were so lost in who God is in his wonder and his love. And in that, they were completely sustained. In that, they were completely well-fed. Every need was taken care of. They weren't anxious about what they had to eat. They weren't even aware of anything other than God is so wonderful. It's called worship in God's presence, tangible presence. They didn't need to do it by faith because they could see him. And wouldn't it be wonderful if it just ended there and we were born into that? But there'd only be two chapters in the Bible, and we wouldn't even need them because we'd be walking around in the full presence of God. But chapter 3, see, this is where it was originally in balance. The relationship between God and man was in perfect harmony just the way, listen carefully, just the way God intended it, just the way God designed it. If you get a car and they take, you take it back in for servicing now, what they do is they plug it into a computer, and the computer has stored in there all the manufacturer's specifications, and the computer measures what's going on in your engine with what the specifications programmed in there say it should be, and if it doesn't not line up, there's a report that comes out. Is that right, Pedro? There's a report that comes out that says, these things aren't working right. So you need to make an adjustment to get it back in line with the manufacturer's specifications. Listen carefully. The manufacturer the one that manufactured you and me mankind designed us with specifications and the primary specification god designed us to run on was him the fuel the life that we were intended to run on is fellowship communion with god one on one chapter 3 is the story of satan coming in to knock it off balance But in order to understand that, we've got to go back a little bit. We'll come back here, but we've got to go over to Ezekiel to get a little bit of background here. Over to Ezekiel chapter uh, 28. It's important to understand, because we're going to look at what Satan came to do, but it's important to understand who he is and why he came to do this. Ezekiel 28. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Now, this starts out by saying, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation, that's a cry, for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. But we're going to see very often in in prophecy, there are different levels. There would be a prophecy made to an individual or to a nation, but then there's a larger, deeper meaning, a, a more eternal meaning to this. And that's what's going on here. And Sometimes there's three levels in a prophecy. Son of man, verse 12, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, the king of Tyre wasn't there, but someone else was there. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. So this being was created you were the you were the anointed cherub cherub that covers you that word cover in the hebrew means to surround like your ribs surround your heart it was a covering this this being was made because he says in the, i created you god created this gorgeous beautiful being it's an angel to hover around the throne of god and to worship him in fact there's some theories that he was in charge of worship in heaven you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. That's other, other uh, angels. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And we're going to see what that iniquity is because that's the core of what we're looking at here. For the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within you and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane, unholy thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. Now, destroy doesn't mean he stopped existing. He destroyed who he was. This is Satan as Lucifer. Before he became Satan, he was Lucifer. We'll look at him in another in Isaiah. And his, he was one of the most beautiful creations God made. And his assignment around the throne of God was to worship God. There's some theories he was an archangel but sin was found in him and we're going to see in a minute what that was sin was found in him and God had to cast him out we're not going to take time to look at it but he was so powerful he took a third of the angels with him in this rebellion he conned a third of the angels who saw God and who he was see seeing isn't always believing They saw God in his majesty. They saw God in his glory. They knew who God was, and yet they were able to be deceived, a third of them. And he says, I had to kick you out of the holy mountain. Well, where he kicked him was here, to earth. And hell was was created as a holding place for Lucifer, who now becomes Satan... And one-third of those demons say angels who now become demons. But the root of him is he was glorious, a glorious creation. Now let's go over to Isaiah, chapter 14. We'll see a little different side of this. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven. By the way, in Luke 10, Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven like lightning. So it didn't take long. You know how long a lightning bolt takes to come to down to the earth? That's how long it took. I saw you fall from heaven, O Lucifer. Lucifer means day star. O son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, the earth. You who weakened the nations, for you sin. here we're going to see how it happened, how did this glorious being created by God, in God's presence, I'm sure other angels respected him in this incredible place of anointing, incredible place of, 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 of prestige and of honor. How could a being in that place fall so far? How could sin Enter into somebody that's standing in the presence of God. How could that happen? It's a real lesson to us. If it can happen there. Of course, it didn't last long once it happened. Because you can't be there in God's presence in sin and last. Here it is, verse 13. For you said in your heart, that's why the heart is so important. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's the other angels. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. Now, the New Testament tells us there are only two sitting there in heaven. There's God the Father and now the Son, who's been raised up, who's seated at the right hand of the Father until His enemies are made His footstool. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. In those three verses, the first pronoun, I, is mentioned five times. Now remember in the garden, we have this balance. God's created this creation. God's created his crowning his crowning man, and they're in perfect harmony with each other because they're functioning the way God made them. Satan, who's now gets thrown out of heaven by trying to lift himself up, his sin began when he took his eyes... Listen carefully. His sin began when he took his eyes off of God and the gloriousness of God and began to look at his own beauty. As if his own beauty... Came from him as if his beauty was a result of his creation and his efforts. He was God's creation. Listen carefully. God was the creator, and Lucifer was his creation, one of them. And the creation began to take his eyes off of the creator as his source and began to become filled up with his own beauty and became deceived that he was his own creation. And then he looks at the Son, the second person of the Godhead, and basically says, I ought to be in that position. Some people teach his ambition was to replace God. I don't believe that. He didn't say, I want to take God's place. He said, I want to be like the Most High God. My own belief is that once he became filled up with himself, he believed that it was his place to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, the one that was in his way, the one that was taking the place he believed he was entitled to, was the Son of God, the Word of God. I want you to see, this is what happens. And now, once he takes that stand and he begins to act, there's a rebellion in heaven, and God throws them out down to this earth. And now Lucifer becomes Satan. God's created, and some, there's some theory, if you read Genesis 1, that he recreated the earth. It was formless, and within, it was void and without form, it says. It doesn't say it didn't exist in Genesis chapter 2 but we're not going to get into that. Anyway, God creates this beautiful creation, and he creates his crowning creation, man. Creates him in perfect balance and relationship with him. The man knows exactly God's everything. And because of that, I have everything, because I'm in union with God. And Satan comes in, and his only goal is to take this perfect relationship and balance and throw it off. Chapter 3 of Genesis. We'll see how he did it because we're talking about that the gospel involves a revelation that we've been reconciled to God, to Christ. Well, if we've been reconciled, we've got to understand how we got out of balance and what that out of balance or out of relationship is so that we can appreciate what we've been brought back into. So now we're going to pick up after this creation. Now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. Notice he was cunning. He's deceitful. So you've got to understand that Satan's major weapon is deceit. The very essence of deceit is what it looks like he's after is not what he's after. I've used the example before of a pickpocket. A pickpocket doesn't come up and say, Excuse me, would you please hold your coat up? Because what I'd really like to do is take your wallet back here. Would you please just hold us still a minute uh, just so I can take your wallet? Because obviously if you knew that's what he were af- was after, you would stay away from him. But what they do is they come and they distract you. We were on vacation a while ago and uh, where we were, there was an illusionist. It was a show it was an illusionist. And, and, and an illusionist is somebody that makes you look one way while they're doing something else. It's deceit. So what Satan looks like he's after is never what he's after. What a con artist tells you he wants is never what he wants. So when you recognize you're with somebody that's conning you, there's deceit involved, you've got to stop and stop looking at what they're saying, stop paying attention because we're trying to get your attention diverted, and ask yourself, what do they really want? So I get out in a crowd, I'm always, my hand back here, I'm aware of my wallet because if i bump into somebody i want to make sure i know what my I, the wall i don't care if i bump my shoulder i want to know where my wallet is and as christians we need to know where our wallet is we need to know what's really satan's after and this is it this is the root of sin what he did in the mountain of god he's now going to try to do down here where he's been cast So let's look at how he did that. He was more subtle. Verse 2. He says at the end of verse 1, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And here's the beginning of Satan's work always. He asks questions. But his questions are always designed to get you to question what God said. Did God really say that? Did I really hear that? Is that really what God means here? Because what he's trying, he he has to separate them from their trust in God. He has to separate them from this relationship with God of perfect trust, perfect confidence, perfect love, perfect blessing. He's got to get them separated from him, and the only way he can do that is the same way he did it, to take their eyes off of God. Because as long as they're looking at God and who God is and have no awareness of themselves, they're walking in perfect relationship, perfect blessing, perfect communion, perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect everything that God has and what he is. And so Satan wants to get their eyes off of God and on themselves. And he starts with a question. Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Because what they're standing on is what God said. That's what they're trusting. They trust God. They trust his word. They take him at his word. Has God, did God really say that? And here's her mistake. She answered him. Now I was for 23 years a lawyer and I didn't do a lot of court work but one of the principles I learned and we have some lawyers in here that can confirm it is that when you're in a trial not everybody has a right to come up and talk to the judge. In fact, you can't even approach the bench without his permission. You have to be acknowledged before you can come and say something to the judge, even if you're a lawyer in the case. You can't just say, Your Honor, I'm going to show you this. It's like, may I approach the bench, Your Honor? And then he gives you permission. Satan had no right in the garden then why did God let him do that? Because God gave that authority to man. You shall tend the garden. And the real question is, where's Adam in all this conversation? Well. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) That's a real question and that's a real answer. (laughs) Has God said, and here's what she does, she starts defending God. Nowhere in God's command or instruction to them that he said, defend me. He just said, don't eat of that tree. That's it. Simple, clear. It's not something you've got to discern deeply. You know, you don't need to have, you know, an exegesis of it. You don't need to have commentaries on it. Just don't eat it. And you'll be fine. But he gets her into this discussion Don't ever talk to the devil. Don't ever try to reason with him. Because he's never after what it looks like he's after. See, just go to Jesus in the temptation. He knew just what to do. His answer to everything is, it is written. It is written. He didn't expound on it. And believe me, he could have. This is the Son of God. He could have argued with him. He could have set him straight. He just stood behind what God had said. But she got tricked. So she starts trying to defend God. And Satan will do that. He'll try to get you to defend, fight the wrong battles. The woman said, but we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, for you will surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat it. Oh, then, serpent, verse 4 says, The serpent said to the woman, You shall, you will not surely die. So now he's gone from just questioning, did God really say that? And the moment she acknowledges him, she authorizes him to speak. If she never answered him, he never would have had the right to speak. That'll save you a lot of trouble. Just because somebody asks you a question doesn't mean you're obligated to answer it. Just because something says somebody says something to you doesn't mean you have to respond. Jesus didn't respond on the way to the cross, did he? They accused him of all kinds of things. And he said he held his silence. But she answered him. And now he goes from just questioning it to outright refuting it. God's lied to you, is what he's telling him. And see what he's trying to do. He's trying to get them to take their eyes off of God and off this trust and to begin to pull away. And the moment they take their eyes off of God, he's trying to get them to look at themselves. God's trying to keep something from you. God's trying to, God knows something that he's not telling you. Yeah, there are lots of things God knows he's not telling us, but he's telling me what I need to know. He's the judge of what I need to know. I'm not the judge of what I need to know. God's not some cosmic resource I go to for wisdom of what I think I know. God knows what I need to know and what I don't need to know. And they were tempted to begin to take it into their own hands. And now she's opened the door. And he just flatly says, God lied to you. You can't trust him because he has some ulterior motive which is exactly what Satan has. And so as he begins to get them to question God, now their foundation gets shaky. Once their foundation gets shaky, now they've got to look to something else or someone else to be someone or something they can trust in. Because now they're not sure they can trust God. And what he's going to do is try to get them to put their trust in themselves and their own judgment In other words, get them to be their own God. And if you're your own God, you have your own kingdom. And that's exactly what he tried to do in the mountain of God. He's trying to duplicate it there. And he duplicates it in our life also. We've got to move along here. You know the story. The woman saw the tree was good. She talked to her husband. He went ahead and ate it. The Bible tells us she was deceived, but it tells Adam disobeyed. Romans chapter 5, it talks about sinning in the similitude or in the example of Adam. Adam broke a known command because he was there when God commanded it. She wasn't. She was deceived. Adam disobeyed. The fall did not take place until Adam ate it and disobeyed. And so the eyes, look at verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. How did they know that they were naked? They became self-conscious instead of God-conscious. They've now elevated in their own will themselves above God. I will make myself like the Most High. I will ascend. I, me, my, mine. And the root of all sin is self. And here's the deception. Because what Satan was trying to tell them is, look, you can't trust God as your God. Because he knows... He says he knows that when you know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, then you'll be like him. And he's trying to keep you from being like him. So if you take it into your own hands, you'll be able to see clearly what, right, what good from bad is, what right, good from evil is. And you will then be like God, which is the same deception he had. The interesting thing is let's see what happens to them when they did it. They became conscious of themselves. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. In other words, listen carefully. They came up with their own method of covering their nakedness. This is what self-righteousness is. They covered their own faults by sewing leaves together. When God comes on the scene, he sacrifices an animal and covers them with the animal's skin. So an animal had to die and blood had to be shed because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So man's way of covering his sin doesn't do it. It's just leaves. Oh, we've got to end this. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. Look at that. They hid themselves. They hid themselves. They hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of God. And man's been hiding from the presence of God ever since until Christ came. So here we have this perfect relationship, perfect balance. The moment they take their eyes off of God and begin to look at themselves, they fall. And now the result of fall is they hide themselves from the presence of God. They're running away from God. They're afraid to stand in God's presence because it's going to show their iniquity. It's going to show their nakedness. It's going to make them aware even more of their shortcomings. And then they hide and then they become afraid. So fear, shame, guilt... All of that enters as moment they take their eyes off of God, the moment they stop being God-conscious and become self-conscious. And here's the deception, and we'll have to end with this, and we'll pick up on the rest of this next week. The deception is God is keeping you from being like him as God. If you listen to me, I'll help make you your own God. And you won't have to be subject to His commandments. But here's the trouble. You can't make yourself into something different than you are. I've got a GM car. I can't make that into a Ferrari. I can't make it into an airplane. I can change the color, we can change the decals on it, we can change the outside, but I can't change what it is. God made man to be in relationship with Him that was dependent upon Him, that was in perfect union with Him, that fed off of Him. Man, through Satan's deception, unplugged from God in order to plug into himself. And here's the point. Man was never designed to be God at all. And whether you're with God or on your own, you can't possibly be a God because you weren't made that way. That means if you're not subject to God as your God, you have to be under somebody else's lordship. Jesus said it this way to the Pharisees You're of your father, the devil. So there's only two fathers, spiritual fathers, out there. And what Satan wanted to do was to deceive them into leaving God's family, leaving their submission to God, their relationship with God, and coming under his dominion without telling them that's what they were doing. He didn't tell them, look, you're going to separate from God... You're now going to be under my domain, my dominion, my authority. You can't possibly be God, your own. You're either his or uh, he's either your God or I'm your God. You've got to choose and you by listening to me, you've chosen me and you don't know it. And that's what's going to happen to people that are not in Christ. The moment they believe their last breath, demons are going to come and drag their soul screaming down into hell. God never intended hell for man to dwell in there. God only intended hell for his demons to be held until the final days. But he's a deceiver. All those Christians, they don't have fun. They go to church too long on Sundays. You know, they're doing all this. You know, they, they, and they're deceived now. They're, they're, you know, they're phobes. They're, they're you know... They—they're they, calling us all kinds of. They're extremists, you know. They're fundamentalists. They're all these things, so that they can dismiss us and don't have to pay attention to us. And they're basically saying, you know, they, they don't—they're—they're—they're—you're they're, you're the foolish ones. They don't know how to really enjoy life. They don't know what life's all about, and that's a deception. I'm my own God. I have the rights over my own body, whether that's a living fetus in there or not. I have my rights. I have my rights. A number of years ago, Frank Sinatra sang what I believe is the theme song in hell. I did it my way. The problem is you and I are born into this within our nature, in our soul, in our spirit, in our nature, and our flesh is saturated with self. And Christ came to reconcile the world to God and bring it back in that relationship that was in the garden. And we'll pick up here next week and continue this foundation. Amen. Yeah, give God a hand clap. Praise the Lord. Before we close the service, I want to just ask a question. I just talked a moment ago about what happens when you breathe your last breath. The Bible says there's only two places where your soul and your spirit can go. There's no purgatory. That's, not, that's man's idea. You can't find that in the Bible. And which direction you're going to go, to heaven or to hell, is determined here on this earth. Hell is the most ama- heaven is the most amazing, glorious place. It's beyond Eden. It's the presence of God. But hell is the most horrible place you can imagine. I was reading something today, this week, about when the, Jesus delivered the madman at Gadara of a thousand demons. Isn't it interesting? They pled with Jesus. Put us into some other animal. We don't want to go to hell. The demons are afraid of going back into hell. Psalm 22, prophetically talking about Jesus' time when he went to hell for us, talks about the bulls of Bashan clamoring it for your body. Demons eat your body, but it doesn't go away. There's uns- you're tortured in demons, and there's hell and brimstone, and people say, I don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. That's what the Bible teaches. But there's a heaven to be gained of glorious peace and joy. And here's the key. Either one of those you go to is forever, forever, forever. If you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old at this point, look back on your life it's nothing compared to forever and you get to choose which one of those two places you're going